Hey, this is Mike Missanelli, and you're listening to the Feed the Embiid, the number one Sixers podcast in America. Yeah, 2-1 on his jersey, playing like he's number one. Best big in the league, and it's no debate. Booze from the haters, point him to the exit. I guess every franchise needs its process. Every franchise needs its own process. Coming down the lane, yeah, watch your head, yeah. We post a every game, yeah. Get your Kodak. Once he gets you under the basket, you better just pray. Hit you with the jab step, knock down, lock from Ben. Get out the way, and one, let the fans know it. Yeah, homie, let the fans know it. Watch the trailer, the three is going in your eye. If you mess, you better get back. Cause if the bees, there won't be a putback. Keep all that trash out of the paint. Cause the bees will put it back in your face. He's a cold blooded killer, and he take no prisoners. Yeah, dump off from TJ. Call it the feed to a bee. What's going on, everybody? This is the Feed to Embiid. I am your host, Austin Krell. I have my always excellent, always prepared co-host, Brock Landis. Brock, how are you? I appreciate the kind words, Austin. Unfortunately, it's becoming tougher and tougher every week to tell you that I'm doing well, especially this week. Uh, so there's plenty to talk about, and I'm glad that we have an outlet to do so. Uh, but there's a lot of stuff going on in the world that, that needs to be dealt with right now. Yeah, no. Before we before we uh, get this thing started, I do want to say that obviously, you know, we come from a position where we're very fortunate to have what we have and to uh, essentially grow up white. And although we can never imagine or understand, and it's almost insulting to try to say we understand because we just never could possibly understand what it's like, um, we have a platform and an opportunity to. Um, you know, provide a helping hand in, in many ways. So go out and vote, um, go out and, you know, encourage people or, um, to, to, to read and to, you know, not just take what they see on the internet, but to actually fact check. You can also help by, you know, reaching out to your local uh, police, um, um, I guess, platform or police station and, you know, uh, express a, a desire for make for making sure that all officers are wearing body cameras and there's a variety of other ways that we can assist but um now is not the time to sit on the sideline because we're uncomfortable and to say you know we'll cheer you on as you fight this is the time to say look i can't understand because i uh, it's, it's it's an unbelievably difficult situation and and uh, you know the white community doesn't face it but we're here to stand with you hand in hand and to uh, stand next to you to um, assist you and, and, and fight this fight with you because we believe in humanity and we believe that, um, you know, you, we, that, that you deserve better. And that's sort of the duty that we have. That's, that's the, um, the, 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 the thing that needs to be done. And, you know, it's still, it's a, it's a free country and people are going to think their own ways. Um, but then the, we can do about it other than try to sort of help them see different perspectives. But bottom line is that, um, you know, while, while people are going are gonna to be racist, if they want to be racist um, and people who don't like us are, are, are not going to be like us, but it does not give anybody the right to, to oppress or, you know, uh, 
murder anybody else for just because of the color of their skin. Um, we're all humans at the end. We're all humans at the end of the day, and uh, what, what's going on is un, is unacceptable, and uh, there needs to be change for sure. Um, Absolutely, that was that was really well said, Austin. Appreciate that. So we're gonna get down to business now. Um, we do have breaking news. The NBA is back. Every, it is back on um, the, the the season as reported by Woj. It's been in talks for a couple of weeks now. Uh, picked up recently with a bunch of back and forths about negotiations and meetings. But we do have a season. Training camp will begin on the 9th of July, and we're basically going to run, um, you know, pretty much. Uh, all, you know, all, all uh, what's the word? All systems go uh, from July 9th to really October 18th. The training camp is from not, is from the 9th of July to the 11th. Then from the 31st of July to October 12th, you have the, the season, which I think includes the playoffs. Then on um, in the middle of the season, we have the draft lottery on um, August 25th. Then on the 15th of October, which is the day or three days after the, the, the after the last game of the finals, in theory, um, you have the draft. And then three days after that, we have free agency begins. So you have the 15th. You have the 18th, and then, and then we have training camp for the 2021 season beginning on November 10th, and the season 2020-2021 starts on December 1st. So you have less than two less than two months until the new season is underway, following the conclusion of the 1920 season. It's a lot. It really is. But first and foremost, I want to give credit where credit is due and say that Adam Silver is confidently the best commissioner in all of professional United States sports. Uh, he had constant yeah. communication with his players in the league. He was texting. They were running polls and he was proposing different types of formats. And when the NBA tried to ratify this format today, it was a 29 to one vote that one team that voted against this format being the trailblazers. And they said they're eager to play and they're excited that this new format allows them to compete for the eighth seed, but they felt as if there was a different, maybe more effective way that the NBA could roll out a different format or a proposal. Uh, but nonetheless, 29 teams agreed with this format. And I think I like it as well. The one thing um cautious about is that with some of the European sports leagues, I believe namely soccer, there has been a spike of injuries and that's because players are kind of being thrown back into this professional environment of playing after taking some time off. And I was trying to determine it's been a little over two months since NBA action, correct? You think? Yeah. Yes. Uh, Maybe two months exact, a little over. No, I think it's about three months because it, it was it was over. It was done in February. February, February, yeah. So well over two months. Now you're, you're, you're thrusting players back into NBA action. What's that going to look like? Is, is there going to be an influx of players that get injured or are they going to use that eight 
game span of regular season games to kind of give load management. I don't know. And and that remains to be seen. That's the one thing I'm cautious about. But otherwise, I think Adam Silver and the NBA did a really good job of this format. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Um, I think my concern might not be for this season injuries, but I think next season, because if you're pushing guys to to get ready for for, for a season where they have, you know, less than a month from the conclusion of, of the previous season to the start of training camp, that's really not a lot of downtime. I mean, I, they're, they're really, what they're doing is they're using this past, I guess, Three suspension as, as the offseason, really. And so they're going to jump, you know, right. it'll be like, it'll be like, it'll be like a little winter break and then they'll be right back into it um, for the, 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 you know, the November and December, and December months. Um, so I guess that is what they're doing. They're going to just turn that into the off season, but um, nonetheless, it is going to be, you know, you're going from playoff atmosphere to downtime to trying to keep yourself, I guess, in moderate shape and training camp right back into it. Um, so, I do think that there's a there's a risk for injury. If you think about the fact that, like, if you go back to the to the lockout year, um, it was the season was back on with with only 66 games. They were playing three games back to back to back some some weeks, um, and Derrick Rose towards ACL in the playoffs. And I'm not saying that there's definitely a cor- correlation there, but you definitely have to think that maybe having to you know try to stay in NBA shape, then being thrust back into it. Them playing three times in a row in a week, that might ha- that that might have contributed to that to that happening. I mean, he's already, you know, battling injuries pretty consistently, but that might have been the, the cherry on top to to Derrick mm-hmm. Rose's stardom right there. Um, so it, it concerns me, but I, you know, I, I think the NBA is taking a bit of a short term look at this because I think that they're they are risking the well the well being of the players um, in in next season and beyond. Uh, let me ask you this: Would you have been in favor of this format and a return, or just to say, cut your losses? We'll see you in October, or set, we'll go to September, stretch it out, you know, put put the season a little longer, stretch it out, and more time off in between games, less um, uh, load management, and all that stuff. What would you have preferred? I think I like this format, and I say that because the NBA has been trying to or at least the the start of the season has been debated upon for at least two to three years now. And the NBA has wanted to either move it, move it forward, move it backward. But now they finally get to do so in having the NBA in December and a winter NBA. And last episode, I said I wasn't really an advocate for that because basketball should be played in nice weather and it could affect attendance if it's 30 degrees out. Um Maybe you don't get an entire sellout at the Wells Fargo Center as opposed to if it's 70, 80 degrees out. But I think this format is something that I looked at. And upon first glance, I really didn't have any problems with it. And as I'm sitting and thinking about it more, I feel even better about it. So where my head is at is that they used the previous two to three months as the offseason, as you speculated a couple of minutes ago. And I think the difference between a regular offseason and this offseason is that both A, travel is limited, so you don't have vacations, and B, I think players were not necessarily waiting for an NBA return, but they might have been erred in the direction of the NBA could return, 
So it would be useful for you to stay in basketball shape. And you have teams sending their players like the Sixers, for example, getting ellipticals and, and certain exercise equipment. I think that's pretty uniform throughout the league. So I'm thinking that most all players are going to be in shape to play basketball. The next question is, are they in shape to play a playoff type of basketball and the strain of playing on court basketball with five other players? Because of course, if you play three on threes or you're practicing fives and stuff, that's one thing. It's almost impossible to recreate game speed with your competition. So I think there's going to be players that may suffer in that department when they start playing real competition again. But I think most of all players are in shape right now for a basketball return. Now they have the basketball return. They have a bit of time to get caught up to speed fully. And then they go to the playoffs. And then you think, well, in a regular season of years past, you'd have July, August, September off. And then basketball starts mid-late October. And I think that would be pretty similar here, except you lose a month or two. And maybe travel isn't restricted as any as heavily as it would from a couple of months ago with the coronavirus outbreak. But I think most players should be caught up to speed. And and I also really like the play-in tournament idea too. It's a way to keep everything competitive for the teams that may not have made the playoffs that they just sent uh, playoff teams. So it, it clears up any confusion with who gets the eighth seed in the West, for example. And the the, the teams that are coming to play in this tournament have incentive to come and play. Uh, so one of the things that we talked about last episode was giving players incentive to come. Why would the Cavaliers or the Portland Trailblazers want to come show up to this tournament if there's no opportunity for them to make the playoffs? And I think the NBA, they, they sat down and they hashed out a really good way to say, well, teams one through six in both the West and the East are pretty much determined, maybe even one through seven in the West. But we have an opportunity here to take a couple of teams in the West that still have a fighting chance to play in the playoffs. And we have a team or two in the East and the wizards get a little more exciting with the addition of maybe John wall. The nets get a little more exciting with the addition of maybe Kevin Durant. And you could have some really unforeseen and, and unbelievable ratings for this NBA return. So I, I really like the way that the format's structured right now. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. I think that's, I think the Durant point was, it was a very interesting one. Um, I, I kind of wonder if maybe like if he'll be ready for next season, because if it begins in, well, I guess it's going to get pushed back. So I guess it won't matter. Um, yeah. Then he'll, he'll be ready for next season. I think. Um, what, let me ask you this. <coughs> With the uh, yeah, with the situation involving Brett Brown, um, you know you have basically a little less than two months bef- from the end of nineteen twenty, where I guess you become eligible to fire your coach, or I guess you can fire him upon elimination if they don't make it to the finals. That is, um, and then you know to the beginning of, of, of camp. And then in the middle of all that, you have the draft and you have free agency. I don't know that I think Brett Brown's going to get fired anymore after this season. I think that this, this, that this suspension may have saved his, his job in Philly for another season, because I don't know if you have time to fire a coach, look for a new hire, unless you already have a new hire in mind and in place and they've kept it under wraps. But 
you don't have time to go and scout the draft, prepare for that, free agent meetings, um, bring in pieces, and then have a new coach. You, you don't have time for that. So I think either they have a new coach ready to go, and then as soon as they are mm-hmm. eligible or they're you know, legally in the NBA rules allowed to fire their coach, they'll fire him. Or I think he will have have lucked his, I guess, you know, at the expense of, of you know many lives in the U.S. and a damaged economy, he will have sort of lucked into a, uh, a a another season on the job. You know, that's what I've been thinking, and I was going to say exactly what you said with scouting and the draft and maybe a direction in free agency. A head coach usually plays a pivotal role in that process. In Elton Brand's Zoom conference call, he talked a little bit about the draft and some players and types of builds he had in mind for the draft, but what they're really looking for is versatility on both ends of the floor, defensive and offensive versatility, because you're not looking for a star or a diamond in the rough, although they're great. You're trying to find plug-and-play pieces that complement your two cornerstone players. Um... In my opinion, I think Brett Brown remains the 76ers head coach for the 2000-2020 and 21 season. Now, I I hadn't thought so, and for for weeks on end, I was calling for his firing, and I thought it was going to finally happen, but this is just an incredibly strange situation. In the NBA, especially for a team like the Sixers that's in, in playoff contention, it doesn't make much sense to fire your head coach with a month or two left in the regular season. And that's why the Sixers, I don't think, did so when there was no coronavirus. Why are you going to fire a coach now if you have a month to play and then we're in the NBA playoffs? Uh, Now, I I think things are going to be completely different. I think the next couple of weeks are going to be telling, or not the next couple, I should say in July, it's going to be more telling what the Sixers may do And if Brett Brown truly says that he's been watching film and there will be adjustments that are made and these adjustments are made, then the Sixers bring him back and I'm okay with that. But if the adjustments aren't made and the same problems are still hindering the 76ers, I can't see why they keep him. But Austin, I do agree with you. I think based on the circumstance, he may may have lucked out. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, so with, with those adjustments that he mentioned in mind and with the season basically two months away, um, it is time to get ready for, for, for Sixers basketball again. It's time to get ready for the playoffs, um, and, and what we have going on. And so with that, um, it is time to sort of diagnose this team, figure out what's wrong and then remedy it. Um, and now I do have. I, I did some. I did some, some good research uh, today, and I will start out with this. People are, are going to talk about how you know it didn't fit. It was clunky. The bottom line is that the lineup of Ben Simmons, Josh Richardson, Tobias Harris, Al Horford, and Joel Embiid played just twenty-two games together. Granted, they were thirteen to nine, so not dominant. Um, but they had a defensive rating of 97.1 at starting lineup, um, which was by far the best in the NBA. I mean, it, it obliterated the, the, the next best, which is the Bucks. They had, I think, over 100. Um, if you then 
sort of go down the, the, the road of, of on the road. Um, they played just 10 games together, three and seven, so not good. Um, they had a defensive rating of 105.4. So better defensive team at home, no doubt. Um, but that 105.4 defensive rating on the road, if you look across all, all NBA teams on the road, it was still third best overall, and it was third best on the road. So, so, so that rating, no matter how you how you say it, their defense, whether whether at home or on the road, wasn't wasn't bad. The defense wasn't the problem. The offensive fit was the problem, and you know, obviously, we knew that. But let's let's break down further into that. Sure. Um, they shot forty six point seven percent from the field, and uh, that was fourteenth best of all starting fives in the NBA. So about league average, not, not where they should be for a team that has, uh, you know, th- three max players in the Al Horford um, that have out in the road. They shot 46.9%. So they shot better on, on the road. That was tied seventh best amongst all starting fives. So you're probably thinking, well, how can that be? I mean, they, they looked like absolute garbage at time on the road. Um, they couldn't shoot worth, 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 worth shit. Um, and, you know, you, you, you're not wrong. They shot 36.1% from three on the road, which is tied for 11th best of, amongst all starting fives, and 35.1 overall, tied 23rd. So there you see the clunky fit. The, the, the shooting just wasn't great. Um, now, however, you can't really conclude much from those shooting numbers because five of the 11 teams that finished with records above 500 on the road shot better than them, only 5 of 11. So less than half shot better than the Sixers did on the road and had a better road record than they did. So how about offensive rating? Their offensive rating, despite their field goal percentage not being as as, as bad as one might think, 105.6. That's 29th of, of all NBA teams. I will admit that 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 stat couldn't be extrapolated amongst all starting fives. That stat isn't available, but amongst all NBA teams, their starting fives rating of 105.6 would have been 29th of all NBA teams. What that means is their five best players could not amass an offensive rating better than 29 of teams in the NBA. So if their best players couldn't do it, what would make you think that, a mix of their best players and their bench players or their bench players by themselves could be any better. Simple fact of the matter is that the offensive rating in the Sixers was just what was, was terrible. No matter how you put it um, on the road, it's even worse. Their 102.3 was, um, was, was the worst of, of all NBA teams on the road. So you have this weird clash, this weird dynamic of their highest percentage of points is coming from the paint. 49.2% of their points come from the paint and 63% of their, of their baskets are assisted. So the overwhelming majority of the time you're, they're entering the ball into the paint, whether it be in the post and you have Horford or Embiid or you have cutters or whatever, they're going for post touches. And that doesn't work when you have two centers, your shooting is subpar. So you don't have great spacing and you're trying to put those guys in the roster together, and it relies on paint scoring. That, 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 that's a puzzle that doesn't fit. Mm-hmm. So the bottom line is that that starting five needs to be adjusted. Things need to change. 
Absolutely. Uh, so, in my opinion, I think <laughs> the most important thing for Philadelphia to do is manufacture some semblance of a half-court offense. Austin, you already talked about the Sixers' defense. I don't need to elaborate on that anymore. Um, but when I look at their 15 games in February, and I look at seven at home and eight on the road, Here's how it went. There wasn't a disparity in drives, not post-ups, not two-point field goal attempts, but here's where the disparity is. At home, they go undefeated, 7-0. 203 point attempts over that 7-0 span at home. On the road where they went 1-7, 308 three-point attempts, almost 10 more threes a game away compared to home. 157 catch-and-shoot threes at home, 7 and 0, 264 catch and shoot three point attempts on the road. So over 100 more catch and shoot attempts away compared to at home. And 7 and 0 at home, only 36 three point attempts very early in the shot clock. That's 22 to 18 seconds. On the road, almost double that. 63 three point attempts with 22 to 18 seconds in the shot clock. So there's this huge disparity in three-point shooting on the road compared to at home. And that's why I think their offense struggles. So defensively, they're already one of the most dominant teams in the league at full health. But when their offense bleeds into their defense, that's when their defense struggles. And I think that's why their defensive rating has this spike when they go on the road. For the previous three seasons, a product of Brett Brown's offense is shooting threes when they're on the road. And they're so good at home, the Sixers, and I think it's largely because of the the comfortability and the energy that the crowd provides them with. Whereas when they travel, I think Brett Brown attacks the opponent by saying, well, we may not have the focus or we we may not be good enough out the gate, so let's just fire away threes. And and if we make them and have a great night where we shoot well from deep, then we're going to win. But the reality is... The Sixers don't have the roster to do that this season, and that's why it looks so unsuccessful when they tried it. Because in previous seasons, there's still this huge disparity between home and away three-point shooting for the Sixers, but it was masked by successful three-point shooters. This season, you're deploying Tobias Harris, who's pretty pedestrian from three at times, and Al Horford or, or Furkan Korkmaz, who, who may be streaky as your three-point shooters, and your plan is failing. Uh, but, but there are some things that the Sixers can do to salvage this offense. And one of them is utilizing Joel Embiid. Now, unfortunately, up until the all-star break, Joel Embiid was not the same Joel Embiid Sixers fans are accustomed to. In 2017, 660 post-ups before the all-star break. In 2018, 568. Before the all-star break this year, 372. That's way less. Not to mention, he had over 3,400 touches in 2017 and over 4,600 touches in 2018. 2019, less than 2,700 up until the All-Star break. But in February, when either Joel Embiid decided he wanted to post up or Brett Brown made him post up, this is what Joel Embiid did. The Sixers beat Brooklyn. Joel Embiid scores 39 points on the 21st of February with a 115.0 offensive rating, 
For those of you who may not know, offensive rating, the higher the number, the better. Defensive rating, the lower the number, the better. 115 for an offensive rating is incredible. Almost 70% true shooting on 20 shots. That's also an incredible stat. And listen, 95% of his field goal attempts that game were two-pointers. He had 14 elbow touches that game. His season average, four and a half. So on February 24th, Sixers fans are hoping Joel Embiid takes his butt in the post. And what's he do? He does. He drops 49 points on a 129.1 offensive rating with a higher true shooting percentage than the game previously on more shots than the game previously. In both games, he went to the line over 15 times. If Joel Embiid is playing that successfully in the post, a team has to do more. Because listen, the Sixers can impose their will with Joel Embiid posting up, and then the defense has to adjust. If the defense adjusts to that, then there's a whole nother 6'10 guy you got to worry about on the floor, and that's Ben Simmons. So for Joel Embiid, all-star break after it. Almost 70% of his point production came via posting up and drawing fouls. It was 61% before the All-Star break. It's not coincidental that the Sixers started winning some games after the All-Star break thanks to Joel Embiid posting up. And here's what happens when it doesn't work. Al Horford and him, one night, combined for 43 attempts from the field. 22 of those 43 attempts, Austin, came from beyond the arc. Of those 22 shots, they combined to make 11. 25.6%. That's Joel Embiid and Al Horford just shooting the hell out of the basketball. Now, if you're Brett Brown, here's what you can look at. In the 20 games that Joel Embiid has less than 10 post-ups, his offensive rating is 103, okay? In the six games where he has exactly 10 post-ups, his offensive rating is 103. In the 16 games where he has more than 10 post-ups, his offensive rating is 100.8. So in the four games Embiid posted up more than 15 times this season, he had an offensive rating of 117.8, and Philadelphia won four of those four games. Austin, do you see anything you know here? Is there a trend you could tell me here? I hate to be Boomer, but he should be in the paint. Thank you. <laughs> and by the way, I'll add, I'll add this to you. You, you mentioned the, the, uh, the 30 attempted threes per game on the road. Um the 10-24 on the road, and their average differential on the road is minus five. So those missed threes that are not – you're not getting better looks out of your possessions, that could dramatically change the outcome of their road record. And we could be ta- we could be having a completely different conversation about a team that is above 500 on the road, is, is a top two or three seed, one of the two or three best teams in the NBA – if they were strategized and implemented correctly, then then they just settle for threes. Um, that three point shooting on the road is really kind of the, the the big difference in their road record and 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 their home record. I mean, honestly, um, they, they they could and they should be much better. And a lot of it has to do with shot selection and rep around saying, you know what, maybe we should step away from the three point line. Maybe we should work the ball into the post and utilize. Our, our crown jewel, as he calls him, and get him to the free throw line or run the ball through him in the post. That 
I don't know what more you need. I don't know what analytic department member you could possibly point to who would have more telling stats than that. The three-point shooting is, at least on the road, is why they are where they are. A six seed, a 10-24 and road record, a very frustrating season, very inconsistent. And it, it could be, literally be the difference of like four or five less threes taken per game. could be that difference. Of course. When you think about shooting threes, especially on the road, you, you may already be playing from behind if they have better home court advantage than you. Of course, teams do well at home. So if you're playing against that and, and you couple that with constant three-point shooting, it's not only going to hurt your offense, but like I said, it's going to bleed into your defense. Because let's say the Sixers bring the ball up past half court and they fire a shot right as soon as they get down half the first shooter that gets open shoots the ball. And and historically, Brett Brown greenlights the first open shooter. So Ben Simmons dribbles down half court, makes one pass to Furkan Korkmaz. There's 21 seconds on the clock. Korkmaz shoots a three and misses. It's a long rebound in most cases for a three-point shot. And now the other team is able to kickstart transition. So maybe you get three guys that get past half court in transition to defend. Maybe you get all five back. But then there's a likelihood there's miscommunication on defense. Who's going to pick up who? Whereas if you just brought the ball up and set up an offense where you put Joel Embiid in the post and didn't have Al Horford on the elbows to mess with Embiid in the post or you kept Embiid high post or you posted him up deep, if you just let your your center Joel Embiid post up way more often than he stands out 18 feet from the basket, you can run a legitimate offense. So my next point was, how do you manufacture a half-court offense? I think with the Sixers, it's pretty simple. You take Joel Embiid, and he takes about five to six three-point attempts per game off the top of my head. And you say, you can still shoot your five to six, but for the most part, you need to be posting up, and you need to be doing so more than 12 times a game. So you have Joel Embiid in the post. Ben Simmons has the highest percentage of points in the NBA in transition. So you let Ben Simmons run in transition and you pair them, you pair those two things with three capable shooters. It's not right. Defensively, we want Al Horford on the floor. That's fine. But your defense isn't bad enough where you desperately need that. You need an offensive boost. So what you can do is put Shake Milton on the floor. I think he deserves to start. You put Josh Richardson on the floor and you put Tobias Harris on the floor. Tobias Harris can pick, can can play his natural position in the floor. And then you have three very capable spot-up shooters, shooters that can move, shooters that can come off screens, things of that sort. So I think there's there's an easy fix to the Sixers offense. It's just a matter of if they want to implement it. And thank you for segueing into, into my, my next um, monologue, if you will. <laughs> um so you think about, well, how, how do they make those adjustments? What do those adjustments look like? Well, Furkan Korkmaz has had a breakout season in the NBA this year, and um, he's been a really good shooter for them, better efficiency, more attempts, more minutes. He's had a couple of 30-point games, really been there, J.J. Redick. And although you can never he can never be as prolific as J.J. Redick was, he's been a refreshing um, hero, if you will, for this team. Um, now, Furkan Korkmaz – in order for this to all work, you have to have Furkan on the court with one of Joel and Al at all times 
And why is that? Well, because two of the teams most played and most high and, the, and their their highest rated lineups include Furkan Korkmaz. One lineup, twenty six games, a one an offensive rating of one hundred twenty two point one. Another lineup, twenty five games, offensive rating of one hundred eighteen point five. And those lineups, one of those two lineups included Horford, the other included Joel. So there is a correlation between the existence of Korkmaz and one of the bigs on the court and the offense flowing naturally and regularly. Um, another thing, Korkmaz and Shake Milton on the court together in some capacity is very good for their offense. The team's highest true shooting percentage on any combination of, 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 of players um, that played at least 25 games together, they had the highest shooting true shooting percentage, which is like 62.6, I think, um, which is 6% above league average, which is about 56, 55%. Um, and they had a, a net rating of plus 14. That's dominant. Mm-hmm. That's dominant. Absolutely. Um, and then you think maybe they can go small ball, maybe run Ben Simmons at the five. That will that will help him sort of work his 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 off his off ball game. And and if you have a lineup that's like Josh, Ben, and then small ball, where you can use use Josh as as the point guard and let Ben just be a pick and roller, and that that kind of works more efficiently. We've seen in games. If you include Korkmaz, Thibel, and who do you think would be the third piece here? Just take a guess. With one of Joel and Horford and, and Simmons? No, no, no. So it would be, let's say it's Simmons and Josh. Who, okay. And then you have Korkmaz, Thibel. Who is that last piece? Who would you guess? I I mean, it would have to be a center, right? Unless Ben played the five. Yeah, Ben's playing the five. I I would think Al Horford. Nope. Joel? Nope. Is it Pell? It is Mike Scott. It is Mike Scott. Mike Scott! Pace of 114.14. Best of all lineups that have played at least 35 games together. And a net rating of plus 21.9. Their record in the games that featured a lineup of Korkmaz, Steibel, and Scott, 26-9. and nine. Wow. So there is a you don't actually think that that you don't actually think that there's a correlation between Mike Scott playing and the Sixers winning though, do you? No, and I'm not I'm not saying the stats says that either. I'm just saying that there is a world where you where where having Scott on the court opens things up for somebody else in a in a way that maybe you okay. don't anticipate. Um and now don't get me wrong, he was god awful for long stretches of this season. I mean, about as inconsistent and as wildly inconsistent as any player you've ever seen. For about all 50, uh, 58 games. <laughs> stats don't lie. The stats say that having Mike Scott on that court somehow makes things easier for the offense. Now maybe, I think now, that maybe may- now maybe his hard air balls are hitting guys in the head. They're getting concussions and then, <laughs> And suddenly everything's easier for everybody. But the stats say the the pace is better. 
and their net rating is absurd. So there is a lineup that you can put on the court with a small ball that features neither Joel nor Al. It's Ben at the five with anyone but Raul Nato playing point guard, preferably Josh. And you have a bunch of wings or, or shooters, if you will, around around that piece. Now, you can't play a lineup with Seibel and Simmons and, and have any kind of like meaningful bonus there. Neither is particularly a good shooter yet. Um, and they're both just going to – they're they're, those, they're both there to disrupt passing lanes. That's an interesting lineup if you want to create transition, but you have to have shooters around those two. Um, and so the same thing with Cork, Mize, and Milton. If, 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 if you have Cork, Mize, and Milton, you can run Simmons, and it could be a good transition lineup. I would even be, I would even be uh, curious to see how a lineup of, like, Ben uh, – Thibel, Korkmaz, Milton, and Joel looks because those are your you know, like those are those are guys that can get out in transition. But I do, I hear but you. I do think this. I think you need to start Joel, Ben, right, Tobias, right, mm-hmm. Josh, and Milton, and I think you need to play Tobias at the four, and let Ben be whatever he is—a hybrid one with it, with it playing defense on a three or a four, but you need to give Joel Embiid the space early in the game and then use Al Horford as your competent backup center. I like that. Uh, that's the same exact starting five. I think the Sixers should roll with, roll with, but providing something unforeseen happens like shake Milton falls off the earth, uh, which I'm not necessarily sure is going to happen, but there will be a regression uh, in a five-game span in March, the dude shot 22 of 30 from the no 13 of 19 on catch and shoots. That, that sounds natural. Nine of 11. It, it, yeah, it, it just seems like a regression is bound to happen. If it doesn't, then the Sixers have a very dangerous two-way weapon because Shake Milton can defend well. But if he does fall off of the side of the earth, I don't think Furkan Korkmaz is the next man to start, and I don't think it's Matisse Thybul either. I think it could be Glenn Robinson. Okay. And that could be a hot take. But I think the reason Glenn Robinson works here is that Josh Richardson is a ball handling too. You can run the pick and roll with him. He could come off of screens. You can run the DHO with him. Or he can bring the basketball up and initiate offense. If you pair Josh Richardson with Alec Burks, I don't think it's a defensive liability. But offensively, that means Ben Simmons is losing touches. It means Joel Embiid is losing touches, and it means that one of them is probably not going to be creative off ball. Josh and Alex, and Alex, my Alex, my apologies. The two of them seemingly do very similar things. So the two of them on the floor together may be counterintuitive. I think if you put Glenn Robinson on the floor in that situation, not only defensively is that going to benefit. But offensively, Glenn Robinson moves off ball very well, and he's a nice complement to Ben Simmons in transition. So if Simmons is in transition and Josh isn't catching up to him or Tobias isn't, Glenn Robinson is a trailer. He's a cutter. He moves a lot off ball. He's never standing still offensively, and I don't think there's too much of a defensive drop-off. When, when I watched him, contrary to how Philadelphia does their screens, he went under screens, and he kept his assignment in front of him as opposed to playing on the hip of or behind his assignment. 
So I think Glenn Robinson could be an interesting start for Philadelphia. If you need shooting, you could, of course, play for Con Korkmaz. Uh, but I like Glenn in a situation like that as well. That's if Shake Milton falls off the side of the earth. But who knows? Shake Milton could be fire. Yeah, I mean, it it, it certainly is interesting um, to to think about. Now, Brock, we are about 43 minutes into the podcast. Let me let me ask you this. What do you, what how how do you predict this whole thing plays out? All right, now I'm a little confused because I know right now that the NBA is I don't know if it's the NBA mulling about it. But Excellent segue. Teams, <laughs> teams are are complaining right now about home court advantage, right? Maybe they need more possessions or more time in the shot clock. I don't know what that's going to look like. And I don't know what these eight regular season games are going to look like because the Sixers have a chance potentially to move up a seat or two. And I mean, a week or two ago, we were talking about the Sixers having to go through Boston and then the Clippers and the Bucks, And and I'm like, the season's done. Like, are you kidding me? There's no shot. But I think it all depends on who the Sixers play. And I have to see how players are playing once once basketball is back in the swing of things. I said that I think the Clippers are going to be the NBA champion for 2019-2020 based upon their depth and the rotation flexibility they have. But it, it, it's, it's tough for me to predict. I mean, what's a home court advantage going to look like? In my opinion, I, I'd propose that a team should be able to make a playlist and have the Auks for the entire duration of the game. And that should be the home court advantage. But Ooh, team, I love that idea. That's a great idea. That, that, I was thinking, I, I was thinking of personal anecdotes. Like when you'd play travel basketball or you, you played high school or whatever you played when you were in a tournament or at a neutral site gym playing against other teams where it wasn't their home court. How do you kind of make it your own home court advantage? And you really can't, you just have to get comfortable in the environment and I think a creative way a team can do that is if they make a playlist of the music they want to listen to during a game, and then you use that playlist throughout the game, and that's home court advantage. That way you don't have to touch and ruin the game for an opponent by giving a team more possessions. I've never heard anything like that. Yeah, I I tend to be in the line of thought that like they're, they're, you're just going to have to suck it up and deal with the fact that there is no home court advantage. That's what it's, it's going to be. Um, if you're good enough to win, if, if you're good enough as a team, you don't need that home court advantage. It shouldn't matter where you play. You go out, you execute the job, take care of business. If you are if, if you come out flat or your, your intensity isn't, isn't there and, and you lose, well, I don't know what to tell you. It's the playoffs. If you're not ready to go every night, that's that, that's that's your problem. Um you know, I, I think I think that the, the home court thing is a pretty superficial thing that people just sort of buy into, um, but it truthfully has no effect in the basketball game. No one, the crowd isn't playing the game. At best, you can say that that, that teams can't hear each other if, if 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 the crowd's making noise, but neither team can hear each other talk, or neither team can hear whether they're the, whether they're the home or the away team. So that excuse really doesn't fly. So there is no home court advantage, and I think. That while you while a lot of people say it only play well at home, um, and therefore it kills the Sixers, it's terrible for them. 
okay, but no one's playing at home. Exactly. No one, no one, no one has a home court advantage. It all normalizes. You're on a level playing field. There, there, there is no home court. It's the team that is the more talented team, team that is a more disciplined team, team that is a better coach team, a team that is that has favorable matchups is going to win. And that's just how it's going to go. And it all puts into the perspective of, okay, well, which side are you on? Do you believe the Sixers are a better or, or more or, or the, the normalized Sixers, the ones that aren't like this up and down tro- uh, in a trough and peak kind of team? Do, are they closer to that team that was four? That was ten games or ten, ten and four? No, ten and twenty-four on the road, or one that was twenty-nine and two at home. I tend to think that, that they're that they're normal, that, that that they normalize closer to that twenty-nine and two team. And that isn't just me being, you know, that isn't me speaking from a fan's perspective. I'm trying to be objective. I, I, you know, I, I'm a sports writer. I try to be objective, but all the the numbers that 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 come together for this team, the stats would probably point to them being closer to that side of 29 and two and 10 and 24. And I think a lot of people don't think about the games that you lose a guy like Embiid early or a guy like, like Ben early or a guy like Josh early in the game. And that affects your game. I mean, Ben Simmons went down early in the jazz game in Utah. They lost that game by five points. He didn't play in a game against Denver. They blew a 20-point lead. Um, now, there are some games where they just flat out got their asses kicked. They lost. but Yeah, that could be a motivation thing, too. It, it could be. It could be. Um, but I, I, it all depends on where you think they normalize. And I think if you look beyond just you know mm-hmm. your memories of this season, like you and I do, look at the stats, it doesn't make sense that that with, with with their stats that, that that they're closer to that 10 and 24 road team. I think they're closer to that 29 and 2 team. And for that reason, I think that the neutral playing ground bodes well for them. Okay. Now, I watch the UFC, and the thing I've observed in watching the UFC is that if you can get your ass kicked and you're on the ground or you're against a cage just getting the 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 snot beaten out of you with no crowd, and you can come back and win the fight, a crowd doesn't matter. And I've seen that time and time again on the most recent UFC cards. So in my opinion, I don't think a crowd matters. When we talk about the Sixers and how good they were at home, I think the crowd energizes them, but I think there's a motivation factor. So if the Sixers are playing in front of a sold-out home crowd, they want to play their best basketball. But if the Sixers are traveling to Orlando in the middle of March – when it's not a nationally televised game and there's only going to be a couple hundred thousand people watching the game, I think there may be a lack of motivation. And then there's that lack of accountability from Brett Brown with the players. And we can find a way to blame Brett Brown for everything on this podcast. But I agree with you, Austin, that I think the Sixers more resemble their home record than they do their road record. But it's going to come down to the adjustments. If the Sixers come out a motivated basketball team with any semblance of a half-court offense, I think they're going to be a dominant team. And defensively at full health, there's not many teams better and more difficult to match up against than the Sixers. I just got done writing and, and posting the YouTube video piece about Ben Simmons. And I knew Ben Simmons was an incredible defender, but I didn't know just how good of a defender he is. And people could talk about Kawhi Leonard 
single-handedly beating the Sixers last season in the seven-game series. But during that season, or series rather, Simmons held his own. I mean, Kawhi Leonard only shot 20 of 50 against Simmons and missed 13 of his 17 threes. Uh, Pascal Siakam, Danny Green, Kyle Lowry, they had a handful of turnovers against Simmons and didn't shoot well either. And that was his first defensive assignment. So could you imagine if a team not only has to worry about their number one primary option being defended by Ben Simmons, but now if you have a center, they get completely neutralized or stopped, shut down by Joel Embiid. And then Tobias Harris, Josh Richardson, Matisse Thybul, Alec Burks. There's other capable defenders on the floor. So I think defensively, they're among the best team in the league, uh, among the best teams in the league. It's just a matter of if their offense affects their defense negatively. If they make the right adjustments, I think they're one of the best teams in the East. If not, then I don't see how they could beat a team like Miami. But if those offensive adjustments are made, I think they're top two, top three in the East. And I and I will say this. I think the momentum factor no longer exists for anybody. I think that a big problem for them on the road was you get down early, um, team goes on a run, and the crowd's into it, you check out, and it's over. There is no crowd there to really get your opponent going after a monstrous duck. There, there is no surround sound noise blasting from the environment. It's going to be, you dunk, you get back, you get back on defense. It's going to be like a lot like summer league, um, and I, I, I just don't think there's a momentum on either side for anybody. And ultimately, the more talented team and the better team is going to make plays. And I mean, I, I, I subscribe to the theory that, that the Sixers should be one of the more talented teams in the NBA. Certainly in the top ten. Maybe maybe top five, who knows? Um, but now that they don't have to play in an environment that has an opposing team's crowd, this is time to come out and, and show that they were built for the playoffs, show that it would all make sense soon, and figure out how this thing goes together. I think a lot plays to their favor now. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I think the momentum factor may hinder some teams, like if, if there's a 7th or an 8th seed that was on the brink of making the playoffs and they had a little bit of momentum before the season paused, that, that could negatively affect them if they just have to pick up and play again. But for a team like the Sixers that seem to have chemistry from the start of the season moving forward, I, I don't think momentum here will negatively affect them. Yep, no, I agree. Uh, Brock, any parting shots? Now, everybody stay safe. There's still a terrible virus going on, and Austin spoke about it during the beginning of the show, so I'm not going to speak too much about it, but just don't be ignorant. Uh, be, be a good human being. At the end of the day, uh, whatever, you, whatever you believe in, whatever politics you subscribe to, you, you have to be a human. And, and what's been transpiring with police brutality and systematic oppression and, and racial inequalities, it's, it's terrible. And a lot of privileged white people like myself have to be aware enough that they are privileged and they are white. So they never even have to think about these types of things. But when I reflect on my friend group and who I've grown up with, and, and I thank my dad all the time for instilling the right morals and respecting me and enrolling me in sports where, where they encourage diversity, just reflecting on my friends and 
some of my closest people, it's just not right that I could be in the car with you, Austin, and we have a certain likelihood of getting arrested. But if you were black or if I'm, I'm, I'm with a black friend of mine, we have a three times higher, more likelihood of getting arrested just based on a skin color. That's terrible. And that's the least of the problems that are happening right now in America. So just just don't be ignorant. Educate yourself. And, and you have to have a better understanding for, for people of different cultures and ethnicities and races and everything of that sort. So stay safe. Don't be ignorant. Do your research. And if you're doing your research, check out my YouTube, Brock Landis on YouTube. Uploaded a video. <laughs> I was going to shout that out. He's Brock Landis. You can find him on Twitter at Landis Brock. He just put out an awesome video about Ben Simmons' defensive ability. Um, I'm Austin Krell, Krell TPL. You can find me on Twitter. Follow the Feed to Embiid on uh, Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, at the Feed to Embiid. Um, subscribe to us on, on Apple Pods, same name. Leave five stars. Leave a great review. Um, stay safe. And d- just think about how you can make the world a better place. That's really the crux of all we're asking. All we're asking is a little bit of kindness and really respect for humanity, which should be so basic. Um, but yet here we are. He's Brock Landis. I'm Austin Krell. Stay there. Stay safe, everybody. Have a good night. Do you like shotgunning beer? you want to increase your shotgun time at parties, check out my boys at the King Cobra. King Cobra is a shotgunning tool that makes the perfect shotgunning hole under a second. Also a tab puller, vent puncher, and all fits on the keychain. For more information about the, about the King Cobra, check them out on Instagram at the King Cobra Co. That's the King Cobra Co. And Cobra is spelled with a K. For a 10% discount on all products, enter the code TRUSTTHECOBRA10, all caps, all one word. Pick up yours today. The feed to MB and its name are protected by U.S. copyright laws, reproduction, and distribution. Without written permission is prohibited. Copyright the feed to MB 2020.